Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas, and I'm here with Nick, as well as a special guest that we get to interview today, Becky Castle-Miller. She's the author of the new book, Following King Jesus. It's a discipleship workbook that she uh, produced in collaboration with Scott McKnight. So welcome, Becky. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. But hang on a second. I was promised that Seth Rogen was going to be on here. <laughs> Did I miss something? All right. I'm going to uh, log off right now. And just <laughs> oh, Nick, I promise we didn't even talk about that in advance. She did I that actually all don't believe own. you. <laughs> he didn't tell uh, me. That was completely my initiative. So. See, I don't but, know if I want to believe that. But I will, I'll try to redeem myself by asking what you're drinking, Nick. Uh, it is too early in the morning for me, and I am also at church, so I'm not allowed to drink on church campus. Don't ask me how I found out that I'm not. <laughs> uh, well, I, I could tell you how my seminary had to change the rules about drinking in the video classroom on my behalf, <laughs> so uh, I, I understand how you feel. So I'm calling from Maastricht in the Netherlands, and so it's 9 p.m. for me, so it is not too early for me to be drinking, so I am drinking a Duvel, which is a local... Belgian golden ale. So I'll just enjoy that while you guys are enjoying your afternoon. Nice. That sounds good. I've actually, um, I'm, it's afternoon. I'm sitting here at the church as well. So I've got a grande iced coffee with milk from um, Starbucks. So, well, uh, Becky, tell us a little bit about yourself. You, uh, You said you're calling in from Maastricht. Tell us why you're, where is Maastricht? Why are you there? And what do you do? Great. So I am on the pastoral staff at an international church in Maastricht, which is in the south of the Netherlands, and we are right on the border of Belgium and Germany. So I can literally walk to Belgium. I've done it. I've taken a run into Belgium. I can cycle or or drive into Germany in just a few minutes. Um, And I've been here about seven years. I moved over to help with this international church plant and have been serving at the church ever since. Um, when my husband and I moved here, we brought six suitcases, three kids, and two cats. <laughs> wow. And now we have a house full of stuff, still the two cats, and we've added two more kids. My two youngest daughters were born here at home. Um, and so we've just been involved in our international community here. There's been people from over 100 nations involved in our church in the nine years that the church has existed. And so I'm Uh, One of my main focuses is discipleship and small groups and pastoral care. So I've done a lot of small group work, a lot of discipleship work. And so um, I've been studying at Northern Seminary for three years out of a four-year program. And that's how I connected with Dr. Scott McKnight. So we did this discipleship book together over the past year um, since he was familiar with my discipleship work in my context. So you are a pastor at a church. Uh, going to seminary, you have five kids, yes. and you have written um, already one book. And as I understand, you just finished the manuscript for an, another study guide with another book with Dr. McKnight. Is that I right? I did. Scott's new Romans commentary is coming out this summer. It's called Reading Romans Backwards. And he wanted a study guide with that so that churches and small groups could make their way through this academic commentary on sort of a lay person's level. So I wrote a study guide called Teaching Romans Backwards, and those will both be out from Baylor University Press, I think, in July. Do you sleep? Not much. (laughs) Definitely not enough. 
Well, I, I think the more impressive question is you have two cats and now my Seth Rogen brain is kicking in. What kind of cats are they? They're Bengals. They're purebred Bengals and oh they gosh. are bred from Asian leopard cats. And so <sighs> one is four generations down and one is five generations down. And they are brother, nephew, uncle. Um, so they have the same father, but the mother of one is the grandmother of the other one. We got them from the same breeder. <laughs> I think I heard a country song about that one. Time. Yes. So their names are Bugaboo and Bungalow. <laughs> nice. Yeah, my the first cat I got, or the second cat I got, is I think half Bengal because he reminded me of a dog because he'd play fetch with stuff. Yes. And he liked water and he'd run around and he's loud. Yes. He just would not shut up. So. My heart goes out to you. Bengals are almost like having children and dogs all in one, basically. Yes, and I have uh, my cat has ruined a podcast interview in the past, so I hope he doesn't do that tonight. He actually, <laughs> my cat, my cat has a cold right now, so he's sneezing and running nose and lost his voice. So actually, we're probably good for tonight because he can't meow. Well, if we hear a weird sounding sneeze, then we'll <laughs> just blame it on Nick. Yeah, <laughs> probably me. <laughs> Uh, all right, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. One of the uh, segments we often have on this show is uh, called Really Bad Pastor's Joke. Um, so if you don't have one, that's okay. I didn't tell you in advance. Do you have a really bad pastor's joke that you'd like to share with us? Well, in addition to serving in a pastoral capacity now myself, I also grew up as a pastor's kid. Ooh, so my dad's favorite Bible joke, and I don't know if this is the right genre, but his was, who was the shortest man in the Bible? Nehemiah. <laughs> but there was a smaller man. Do you know who the tiniest man in the Bible was? Uh, the man who slept on his watch. Oh, oh, yep. Okay. That's, I, I was going to go with Bill Dad the shoe height, but yeah. Oh, that's yeah, even... you know what? That There is like that layer. I think you're supposed to go down the three layers, and I yeah. think I missed one. My dad would be yeah. disappointed in me. <laughs> no, that's good. That's I mean, that's high-quality dad slash uh, <laughs> pastor joke right there. Yes. So, um, All right, so I've got one. Okay. All right, so, and I can't claim to make this up, but I did have someone say, say it to me a while back. All right, so the church council met to discuss the uh, pastor's compensation package for the coming year. Uh, after the meeting, of the, the chair of council told the pastor, we're very sorry, pastor, but we decided we cannot give you a raise next year. And, of course, you know, the pastor says, but you must give me a raise. I am but a poor preacher. And the chair of council said, I know, we hear you every Sunday. Oh, <laughs> solid burn. Ooh, ooh, that's, yeah, that's, that's a little too real. Um, <laughs> a little strong, a little strong. Uh, all right, so you wrote this book, Following King Jesus, How to Know, Read, Live, and Show the Gospel, and it's a 24-lesson workbook. Um, and we'll get into sort of how you laid it out in a minute, but I mm -hmm. want to start with uh, the first two sentences from your introduction. You say, what is the difference between a Christian and a follower of Jesus? There shouldn't be one. So I think that's a great introduction. Just tell us a little bit about the, the intention of this book. There's lots of discipleship material out there um, already. Why this? How, what, what's your goal? What's your aim? I think... My aim in writing it was to share with others the discipleship journey I've been on myself over the past 10 years or so, 
And one of my lines just a little bit further down in the introduction, I said, we Christians don't always follow the one whose name we bear. I know because I've called myself a Christian for 33 years, but for long stretches of that time, the religion I practiced had little to do with Jesus. So I asked Jesus into my heart when I was four years old. I already said I grew up as a pastor's kid. Um, And I was a Christian culturally, and I believed it. I've always believed in Jesus, but I didn't always check my religious practices against Jesus as revealed in the Gospels. And so about 10 years ago, I went through a very serious faith deconstruction and reconstruction process when I was struggling with postpartum depression after my second child was born. And in that process, I began to really discover who Jesus is. And then my work here in the Netherlands um, with our lead pastor, Matthew Lenders, um, he has a very strong emphasis on Jesus as our example, and that permeates all of the work that he does. And so really learning from Matt's example on that, um, he's taken our church through the Gospels in a lot of detail. And so reading the Gospels over and over again um, has really reintroduced me to Jesus, and I've seen Jesus in very different ways. And then studying at Northern Seminary um, with Dr. McKnight and looking at Jesus in the Gospels at an academic theology level, I've, I've just... It's complete. I feel like I'm practicing a different religion now than what I grew up <laughs> with. It has a, some things in common, but some things that are very different as well. So my faith has changed dramatically, and I really want to be a follower of Jesus who lives like the Jesus in the Gospels. And so this book was an attempt to share that journey with others. And I almost... I don't know if my publisher is going to get upset with me for saying this, but I I actually don't think that following King Jesus is a great introductory discipleship course for a new believer. Hmm. I actually think it's best suited for people who are, have already been Christians and who kind of want to be re-discipled. Okay. Hmm. Like they want to see Jesus in a different way. And I can talk more about what I would recommend for, for very new believers um, maybe later, but but I, the best feedback I've gotten from people so far and the consistent feedback I've gotten from people is from lifelong Christians who have started working through the book and have said, yes, I have your same story. Like I grew up Christian, but something was missing. I wasn't really following Jesus, and this is helping me see how to do that. Very cool. You have a line later in your introduction. You say, it's not about a set of inward beliefs and outward cultural religious practices. It's not about safety, and it's not about rules. It's about being transformed inside out into knowing, thinking, feeling, acting, and loving like Jesus. In other words, being a Christian is about actually following Jesus. And so I just want to know, when did you become a Pelagian? (laughs) (laughs) For for those of you who who are listening who don't know, Pelagius was a... uh, He's been deemed a heretic by the church because he taught that we could earn our own salvation. And those of us who um, talk about actually following Jesus and living out the love ethic are, are sometimes accused of that. So, some, some. Right. I hope that the word being transformed gives enough credit to the Holy Spirit of actually transforming us and making that spiritual change in us. So what do you see as the deficiency in in the kinds of 
discipleship that I think, in a sense, all, all three of us kind of grew up with, and, and many of our listeners have. Um, why does a belief-only discipleship or a knowledge-only discipleship, why does that fall short of Jesus's vision for discipleship? Well, there's the necessary element of being transformed into Christ-likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think if we don't open ourselves up to that, we're missing something. Um, There's the element of self-sacrifice that I think we sometimes miss. Uh, But I think the biggest challenge, at least for broad swaths of American evangelical Christianity, um, is that is the influence of other beliefs and cultures layered on top of our Christianity Hmm. um, that get in the way of truly seeing and following Jesus. So, for example, consumerism, um, uh, business practices as church, American nationalism, um, (laughs) political allegiance to anything other than our allegiance to King Jesus. Hmm. A lot of those things that we layer on top of our American Christianity are what keep us from being faithful followers. So I think stripping Mm. away those layers and seeing who Jesus is and what he calls us to is necessary. And being part of an international church is one thing that's showed me that. Um, Because most of the Christians I know are not American Christians now. (laughs) And their following Jesus looks very different from the cultural trappings of American Christianity that I grew up with, but they're faithful followers of Jesus. So any way of following Jesus that isn't applicable across cultures is probably adding culture on top of Jesus. Oh, that's interesting. Could, could you highlight some of those differences? Like what what's following Jesus in, in the Netherlands look like differently than following Jesus in America? Well, it looks like a lot of different things, and I think that's the key. It's the diversity and the unity in the diversity. So instead of – so I grew up in pretty fundamentalist circles where there were a lot of extra beliefs that you had to have or else you were kind of considered not one of the in-group. Like your Christianity (laughs) was kind of called into question if you didn't believe in young earth creationism for example. Wait, 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 wait. You, you don't? I'm not giving my opinion I think now. we need to end this podcast. Saying... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you also, like, there was, there was this sort of um, bias against accepting any human responsibility for climate change. Like, I wasn't allowed to watch Captain Planet when I was a kid <laughs> because there is too much care about, like, care for Mother Earth and, like, environmentalism. Now I I look at us as stewards of creation and I wonder why would we not care about the creation that God wants us to steward, that God's going to restore in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, So there were these extra cultural beliefs um, for, for, you know, maybe like not drinking, um, not wearing certain clothes, aligning with certain political opinions um, that, that got layered on top of Christianity. And so... I look at my church now and I see young scientists who go to global climate marches and that for them is part of their Christianity. Whereas I know American Christians who would question their Christianity because of their involvement (laughs) in those things. I know young Christians who are um, 
deeply involved in refugee care. Um, one of my friends here went to Greece and was pulling um, lifeboats onto the beach and re rescuing refugees who were drowning. And I'm going to start crying because, wow. I mean, the story she told about this two-year-old who died in her arms and, oh. and her struggles with faith because she's seen the global church be so anti-refugee. Whereas she's, you know, risking her life to save people who are in crisis. And so, wow. you know, I, I see people living out their faith in Jesus in very tangible ways, going to the refugee center we have here in Maastricht um, and crossing some of these political boundaries. You know, I have Christian friends here who are committed socialists, um, which American Christians would what? frown on. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I have you know, Christian friends here who are very involved in, um, in feminist marches and, and protests here in the area. And so, you know, people... And, and those things, would you say that they are in addition to their Christianity or an outworking of their Christianity? Uh, for a lot of my friends, being involved in social issues is very much an outworking of their Christianity. Um, it is their way of, of working to bring shalom, to bring God's peace and flourishing into every area uh, of human life. Um, but I also have like friends from various places who are um, more on the conservative side, um, who, uh, you know, w for example, very strongly oppose any alcohol consumption by Christians. Um, so to honor people with those convictions um we don't serve alcohol at church events um but we what don't about communion communion we use grape juice okay yeah um, you're a good baptist then if that's what you go with. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't have a policy like pastoral sure. staff is allowed to drink based on their own conviction if they want to so we try to honor all of the various mm -hmm. convictions um so you know racial issues are a huge issue in a multi-ethnic church Right. Uh, we've got people of all skin tones and all ethnicities and many, many language backgrounds. Um, and there is a Dutch tradition um, called Swarte Piet, who is Black Peter, who is Santa Claus's, is like uh, Santa Claus's helper. Okay. And every year at Christmas, this is a huge issue that people in our church um, butt heads over. Is Swarte Piet racist? Is it just a Dutch tradition that we need to accept? And so that gets heated every year at Christmas time in our church. Um, you just like December 1st rolls around and you get ready for the sort to Pete discussion again. Um, so our hardest work, I think, as pastors here is to hold people in unity while allowing them to follow Jesus differently from each other. We all want to be like Jesus, but like we're that. all allowed to be individuals. And so holding that diversity mm. is is the challenge. So I guess that's what I see as different about following Jesus here than what I grew up with is that it's not a bunch of people who look the same. It's a bunch of people who are super different, all trying to follow Jesus in their own way. So it's not about conformity. It's about unity. It's about Christoformity. There we go. And unity. Ooh, there we go. Jesus Jew. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so you, you've broken your book down uh, into few different sections, knowing the gospel, reading the gospel, living the gospel, and showing the gospel. And so gospel is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot. 
Um, as a matter of fact, there's a, there's a coalition. Um, and there's, <laughs> <laughs> um, the coalition that shall not be named? <laughs> no, not until we throw the ring back in the fire. Um, so one of the things you do right off the bat is is talk about um, how the gospel uh, has been misunderstood and you started out with a really with a really neat story talking about how somebody came to you and said our church or our pastor doesn't preach the gospel very often so so tell us that story and use that as a lead in to explain um what the gospel is and, and maybe how that differs from how it's used in, in other contexts. Sure. Um, a friend of mine and I were having coffee and she made that comment that our pastor doesn't preach the gospel very often. And it took me a second. I kind of stared at her because we had literally just finished a year long sermon series called the Jesus life challenge <laughs> where we had gone through the four gospels, um, multiple times over the year. And every week there was a challenge to take an action or make a change in your life to be more like Jesus. Um, but we finally realized we were kind of speaking different language. And what she meant was we don't have altar calls very often. And uh-huh. that's true. Our church does not have uh, an altar call like almost ever. Okay. I can maybe think of three or four times in years that we've ever done a, Hey, if you want to um, pray this prayer, and have your sins forgiven. Like, that's just not the way that we approach discipleship. But we talk about the story of Jesus a lot. And we make the offer to encourage people to follow Jesus. And we encourage people to follow Jesus into baptism and into to growing as followers of Jesus. We just don't put it in terms of, like, the sinner's prayer or, you know, uh, the Billy Graham gospel. That's not the way that we present it. And we don't do altar calls. So... Um, how I would define the gospel now having studied with Scott McKnight for three years is the way that Scott defines the gospel, which is the story of Israel culminating in the story of Jesus. So Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of God's work in Israel. So it is, uh, it's the good news of the kingdom of God coming near, inaugurated in the person and work of Jesus. And that's a much more holistic view of the gospel. So Scott would say that the gospels are the gospel because the gospels tell the story of Jesus and therefore they tell the gospel. So the, um, the way that following King Jesus, the book is set up. Um, it takes excerpts from four of Scott's books in the four different sections. So the first is the King Jesus gospel and then the blue parakeet, which is about the Bible then One Life, which is about discipleship, and then A Fellowship of Difference, which is about church life. So I took excerpts from each of those books from Scott. So each lesson in Following King Jesus has an excerpt from one of Scott's books, and then a whole study guide I put together with a Bible study and prayer and small group discussion. So that whole first set of lessons is about the King Jesus gospel. And so one of the the things you talk about in your introduction to the lesson, you say, the conflation of, quote, gospel, end quote, with, quote, personal salvation decision, end quote, is pervasive and it limits the gospel. So you're not saying that um, the gospel isn't how to be saved. You're just saying that it's much, much, much more than that. Is that right? Exactly. The gospel is absolutely a message of holistic salvation. 
and it's about the kingdom of God, and it's about the life and work of Jesus, and it's about how we're called to emulate Jesus, and it's about new creation coming, and it's about living in the covenant community of God's people, etc. Do you think, and this is something I'm, I, I encountered this, not at, not at Fuller, but uh, in kind of my conservative upbringing, which sounds very similar to yours, Becky, uh, was any resistance to the idea of narrative in terms of reading scripture, of understanding. So the idea of presenting the gospel as something that uh, means you're involved in a bigger story, you're involved in Israel's story, you're involved in the culmination of certain events and ideas, was really frowned upon to, and in favor of, say, as we've, as we've mentioned, a kind of a propositionalized gospel where, you know, we syllogize it, you know, you're sinful, Jesus came to forgive you of your sins, therefore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, uh, and this might be an American evangelical thing, but do you think a resistance to kind of narrative theology is is part of the problem in American evangelicalism? I didn't even realize narrative theology was a thing until I started seminary. Same here. So maybe that <laughs> Same answers here. your question. <laughs> I was familiar with systematic theology, hmm. but actually studying with with Scott is great because he's very much uh, a proponent of narrative theology. That's how he teaches. Um, so seeing narrative theology contrasted with systematic theology, I definitely prefer narrative. Um, I never heard a resistance to it. It was just that I never saw it done hmm. at all. Well, you've probably got listeners who don't know what narrative theology sure. is. Can you just sort of give a brief overview of that? Uh, well, systematic theology first would be looking at theology and the Bible through human categories. So sin and forgiveness and atonement and uh, faith, all of those words that we use and we categorize it and we sort of chop the Bible up into pieces and proof text it and make it support our human categories. And that is maybe not a very generous description of systematic theology. I should have a systematic theologian say that uh, <laughs> maybe more correctly. Uh, but narrative theology is more looking at the Bible as story. And making sure that as we study the Bible, we keep in mind the Bible's whole narrative. So um, the categories Scott uses for the Bible story in the Blue Parakeet is theocracy, monarchy, and Christocracy. And that's one shorthand way of looking at it. The time when God ruled directly, then the time when God ruled through the kings and prophets, and then the time when God ruled through Christ as king. And Christocracy is theocracy, so it brings it full circle. So narrative theology is a lot of things, but one way of looking at it is seeing the Bible as story. Yeah, and, and major proponents are people like Richard Hayes at Duke Divinity School who studied at Yale and stuff like that. Uh, and so that's really, I, I really like that because it, it kind of makes, it's one of those things, uh, art, for example, I, I'm associate pastor at a church with a lot of artists, a lot of teachers. And so there's a big community here for that. And what I think is so fascinating about it is when you present uh, the, the totality of scripture in terms of a big story that you're involved in, but not only that, there's an artistic or there's even, I dare I say, revealing my own undergraduate background, a cinematic way of understanding and participating in, in what God is calling us to be. And I think that carries a lot of power, especially in terms of spiritual formation and discipleship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing, when I when I teach the Bible, um, 
I I try to start with the Bible's story so that I, I use the analogy of giving people a pegboard to put their pegs on later. Mm-hmm. So as they learn each little peg of different sections of scripture, they kind of know where to put it on the bigger board to give them a way of, of understanding the totality as they study the little pieces. I like that. I'll have to use that. You are welcome to it. Thank you. <laughs> so when when we talk about the gospel discipleship, and you're specifically a, a discipleship pastor, what kinds of things are are you looking to see formed in people to, to, to measure discipleship? Is, is discipleship measurable? Ooh, that is a good question. I think it's measurable because we're supposed to show fruit of repentance. So to the extent that you can see fruit in someone's life, I think that discipleship is measurable not that it's entirely quantifiable sure or that we have the right or responsibility to judge someone else's service to the <laughs> king because they're responsible right. to their master not to us um but i think if we're consistently seeing spiritual fruit show up more and more in someone's life then i think that's a good indicator that they're healthy and growing by spiritual fruit you you just mean um doctrinal superiority right yeah, exactly. Make sure that they know all of their talking points word for word. Justification by faith alone. Ding, we got it. That's right. Um, so, I mean, like kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and... Uh, actual that list fruit, sounds familiar. It does. Actual fruit of repentance as well. <laughs> the kind of things that John the Baptist was calling for. Um, to, to show fruit of repentance. And so if someone has been not reconciled with other people in their lives and they decide to follow Jesus, I expect to see work of reconciliation. I expect to see work of repentance and humility and even restitution if that needs to be paid. Um, I want to see teachability growing in someone's life, um, a willingness to learn, an excitement to learn from the Bible, um, and a willingness to check themselves. Oh, what I just did was not what Jesus would have done. I need to ask the Holy Spirit to help me change that about myself. So those are probably the things I would look for just to make sure that people are growing. If if I have been given the right to disciple them. Sure. Otherwise, sure, it's really so not any of my business. <laughs> That's a good answer. And I, what I love about that is you have included concrete action steps with each lesson um, so that people who want to take it seriously, it, it gives them if they, if they want to do it. And if they're in a group, I think um, the accountability to do it, steps that they can actually take to start putting these things um, into practice. Mm-hmm. How have you seen that work out you know, in, your, in your role as a discipleship and, and small groups pastor? Um, what have you seen to be effective ways to actually form that in people? In other words, to form people who are, who are bearing fruit instead of people who just know a lot. Right. Um, that is one reason we put action steps in the study guide. There is an opportunity for people to do self-study. So they do a Bible study and they're reading, reflecting, reflecting, journaling, praying on their own, and then an action to take for themselves 
then in their small group time, which I hope people will do it in their small group, there's a chance to discuss, pray for each other, and to take action together, such as serving their neighbors, um, mm-hmm. really doing things that Jesus would do, reaching out to poor and marginalized people. Um, so I've seen these things work well in our small groups at my church, um, watching people learn to pray for each other, learn to hear each other's needs and then stepping up to meet each other's needs. Um, I think that's one of the most beautiful ways to see people growing as disciples is when they start being the church, when they start noticing each other's needs and doing what they can to meet their needs, when they start really sharing everything in common. We just, as a church, studied the book of Acts over the past year. So that's really been on our minds and and in our talk is breaking bread together, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and uh, sharing everything in common. So um, when I see groups taking action to uh, check in on each other, remember what they prayed for. Hey, we prayed for your son last week. How is that going? Um, A a couple years ago, all of my kids were sick and my washing machine broke. And one of the women from my Bible study group came and picked up baskets full of my dirty laundry, took them to her house, washed and dried them and folded them and brought them back to me. Wow. Um, uh, my son was just in the hospital this past week, and people brought us meals, um, and just those tangible things of of receiving care and giving care to each other. Um, I think when we see that growing out of a small group, we can see that disciples are really being formed. I love that. That's very cool. Um, so, as a church, how do you guys? Uh, are you? Do you do pastoral care through the pastors, or is that something that you're trying to facilitate in small groups? How, how do you work all that together? That's you know not part of your book, but just a question mm-hmm, I have mm-hmm. as, a, as a fellow pastor. <laughs> uh, technically, it is part of the book. I actually have an appendix at the end with just a little bit on facilitating groups and providing pastoral care. So there is just a little bit of a note to group leaders on some things I've learned about pastoral care. Um, I do try to prepare small group leaders to do pastoral care. And we also have a care team that is trained to do pastoral care. So um, our church is small. We have very high turnover. We've probably had a thousand people who've called it their church home. But right now our average Sunday attendance is about a hundred because with our expats and international students, the turnover is just very, very high. It's constant new people. So our church is small and we have um, the full-time lead pastor and then me as a part-time staff person. And that's it. (laughs) That's our leadership. Okay. We have a council of elders. We've got four, uh, we call them servant leaders, and they do a lot of practical ministry work. They're kind of hybrid uh, elders, deacons. And then we have a care team, and that's a four-person team that I am part of and that I helped launch, uh, of people who have uh, the desire and capacity to do long-term listening and support giving to people who have uh, chronic illness or mental health struggles or... Um, we do a lot of abuse recovery work. So our care team receives special training, but we still know that we are not medical professionals and we are not mental health professionals. So Mm -hmm. we just see ourselves as being the first touch point when someone is struggling to connect with them, listen to them, pray for them, and then to connect them with proper professionals. So to make sure that they're seeing a therapist, make sure they're seeing a doctor, um, or helping them get checked into a rehab facility or whatever it is that they're needing, we make sure to re- refer that out. We never try to handle crises uh, on our own within the church. Um, and with abuse, also, we um, 
you know, make sure that we're interacting with police and um, social services uh, and make sure that people are, are getting proper care um, if, if there's an abuse situation, which, as I said, we, we've dealt with a lot, um, both sexual abuse and domestic violence. Um, so the pastors do care, care work, the, the care team does care work. And then every year when I train my new small group leaders, again, with the high turnover, I'm training new leaders every year. I train them on basic suicide prevention awareness, uh, basic mental health knowledge, mental illness awareness, um, basic abuse prevention and response, so that when those issues come up in their small groups, they're at least a little bit prepared. And our small group leaders have dealt with all of those situations. I've gotten calls in the middle of the night of small group leaders saying, okay, this just happened. What do I do? And I'll say, okay, thank you for calling me. Let's, let's take some steps to, to <laughs> fix this or like, you know, yeah. uh, involve whoever we need to involve in the situation. Um, so I try to make sure they're prepared for that stuff and that they know they're going to spot that stuff to be prepared to spot issues and then to escalate those to appropriate levels of, of response. Uh, the basic stuff like knowing people's birthdays and bringing meals when they're sick and visiting them when, when they need a friend, all of that, they do a wonderful job of, of doing themselves. And how is the how has that been received? Um, I know sometimes in more traditional established churches, um, there's this expectation that the the professionals are supposed to be the ones who are doing ministry. But it sounds like you're you're really working hard to equip your people to do the work of ministry, like like mm-hmm. it says in Ephesians um, chapter four. How has that been received? Are people do they like having that done in the small groups or has there been pushback like, oh, no, we need pastor to come visit us? You know, I don't think I've ever seen that happen. Wow. Where someone has rejected help or, you know, OK, well, that was nice, but you're not good enough. I need to talk to the pastor. <laughs> but also our pastor, lead pastor and I make ourselves very available. OK. Uh, every once in a while, Pastor Matt will just put a sign up sheet at the back at the greeters table and just say, hey, if you want to have coffee he doesn't drink coffee. If you want to have a hot chocolate or tea with me uh, or come to my house for a meal, just put your name and phone number down and I'll set that up. And he just does that regularly. So people know the pastor is accessible. Cool. And I do the same. If people want to meet with me, I make time in my schedule to do it. So uh, we're not we're not like uh, surrounded by bodyguards who are <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. guarding us. So we're accessible. Right. So people know that is available, but they also know that their small group leaders are good at caring for them and the care team is available as well. So we, we do try to spread that. And I, I like that you pointed out or that you noticed that we do try to equip our people. That's actually one of our top goals as a church is to see ourselves as an academic hospital in the mm-hmm. sense that everyone who comes through, who has gifting and desire to do ministry, which we hope is everyone, uh, we work really hard to give those people opportunities to train their gifts. Um, we we very regularly put people up front on a Sunday morning to read the scripture or do the announcements or share a testimony so that they get experience with public speaking. We make people ministry leaders. If they want to start something, we empower them to start it. Um, so we work really hard to empower people to do the work because we know we can't do it all ourselves. And we know that they're only going to be here six months to three years, and we know they're going to go somewhere else. So we want to train them while we have the chance so we can send them out to bless another community. Very cool. Uh, so 
talk with us a little bit about how the Bible as a whole relates to being a, a follower of King Jesus. Because um, one of the things that, at least in the American context, and I don't know if it's in, if you have any kind of conservative evangelicalism in Netherlands that's, that's the same, but there's a lot of, you know, talk about, well, what's biblical? We need to follow the Bible. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how, how the Bible as a whole fits into being disciples of Jesus. Uh, for a longer treatment of the subject, see the Blue Parakeet Second Edition by <laughs> Scott McKnight. Uh, <laughs> it's quite <laughs> And good. I do emphasize the, the Second Edition uh, that came out last year, and it's got a lot of new material. And I wrote actually a study guide for Blue Parakeet as well, uh, which is available for free on the Zondervan Textbook Plus website. You can find that study guide and download it if you want to teach your church through the Blue Parakeet. So if you're struggling in your church to help people understand how do we live out the Bible today, I actually highly recommend that you take them through Blue Parakeet. Um, I've taught it in a class in my church, and it was really a positive experience. Um, so the whole Bible is the story of God and God's people. And we are part of that story. And so we need to know our family tree. We need to know our faith ancestors. And we need to know how we fit into the mission of God for God's people as revealed in the Bible. So God made a covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, one of my favorite passages of scripture. And God's plan for Abraham was to make a nation that would represent God to all the other nations that would show how good God is in their care for other people and their care for each other. And they were supposed to be a light to the nations. And, and they so, succeeded wildly, right? Oh, just over and over again. So much success. <laughs> so much winning. Every generation. Um, <laughs> so, of course, as fallible humans, they didn't succeed at this. And, um, and so you trace this story... And God trying to bring the people back into covenant, but not just back into covenant for their own sake, but back into mission for the sake of the nations over and over again. Um, so the judges and the prophets and the restoration after exile and the kings and um, all of that was God's effort to bring the people back around to their mission as a light to the nations, to be a blessing to all nations. And then when Jesus comes... Jesus is the one who shows truly what God is like and how to be like him and how to be the people of God as we were intended to be. And then Jesus, of course, introduces the new covenant, which has the same goal as the other, as the old covenant, which is to be a blessing to all people, to bring everyone into that covenant family of God. So then we go through the New Testament and we see the church sorting out what it means to be the new covenant community of God. Um, Scott has another book called A Community Called Atonement um, that looks at that in a little bit more detail. Um, atonement theory as covenant community and how the church is formed out of that. Um, so looking at the story of the Bible and how that affects who we are as disciples, it's that we fit into the covenant people of God and we are supposed to be a light to the nations and we are supposed to be a blessing to all people by the way we love each other and love God and love our neighbors so that it is attractional and so that people see that and that they want to be part of that family of God. 
So I think that's one way that doing narrative theology or looking at the story of the whole Bible can show us what it means to be disciples of Jesus. Well done. <laughs> That's a great explanation. Um, so when you're, you know, talk about in this workbook how you train people to read the Bible as followers of Jesus. Hmm. That's a great question. And I don't know that I actually had that question in mind, which I really ought to have. So maybe, maybe I can make sure I've done that when I write the second edition of this book. Um, I, I have a, a little Bible study section in each lesson of the workbook right. that takes some themes from Scott's writing uh, and further expands it to where people are studying the Bible for themselves. Because I think it's important for people to learn to feed themselves spiritually. Right. Um, they need to learn to interact with the Bible and study it and even just basic reading comprehension, what does the Bible say, is a really good place to start. <laughs> um, so some of the Bible studies are Old Testament passages. Some of them are epistles. Some of them are gospel passages. Um, and my favorite part is I actually have people read the entire gospel of Mark over the course of two lessons. And a lot of people aren't used to doing that much gospel reading or Bible reading at all in that period of time. Um, so there's one lesson where they read the first half of Mark for their Bible study and one where they read the second half of Mark. Um, and I hope that that really immerses people in the story of Jesus and helps them grow in their discipleship, um, by looking at the whole story of Jesus. Um, another way I think that people will learn to read the Bible as followers of Jesus through this course is to realize, um, that for Jesus, the scriptures were the first Testament, the old Testament. Um, and I hope that people see that connection, how much Jesus and the apostles quote from the old Testament and how integral it was for their understanding of who God is and who they were as God's people. But that's a really good question. And now I'm thinking, gosh, I don't know if I accomplished that goal. <laughs> no, no, I, I think you did. And especially in, in your, um, the way that you tie the the actions into the the readings and the way that you um, I could have probably asked a question better you know how, how you frame that in that in section number two um, learning to, to read the gospel and, and the blue parakeet so I think you answered it well and I think you do accomplish that Thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> so okay so we've talked about knowing the gospel we've talked about reading the gospel so your third section is living the gospel and, and you break it down into kingdom life love life justice life wisdom life, vocation life, and eternity life. Um, and so here's where, where you really get into um, putting it into practice. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the most, this is probably the part of the book that's the closest to a typical discipleship curriculum because this is the practical how do you live this out section. So give us the you know, a one or two minute summary of the how you live it out and and why is that um, why is that necessary to discipleship as opposed to just, you know, it's it's nice if you do it, right? Um, mm -hmm. where we sort of we sort of treat sometimes in evangelicalism, you know, there's a there's a distinction between evangelism and discipleship. And so help us explain or help explain to us why uh -huh. discipleship is not 
its own separate category, mm. but but the logical next step. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. I actually, when I teach evangelism and discipleship, I like to use the angle scale, E-N-G-E-L. And that is a scale, I've seen some different versions of it, but it's basically going from absolutely no knowledge of God to being a, uh, a fruit-bearing follower of Jesus. And that really puts evangelism and discipleship as part of the same progression. So taking someone um, and sharing the story of Jesus with them to encouraging them toward deciding to follow Jesus themselves, encouraging them then to walk faithfully in that. And I see that as all part of the same progression. So I, yeah, I definitely don't separate out evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is telling the story of Jesus and discipleship is also telling the story of Jesus and living it out. So it's all part of the same progression. Um, so that is just, that's just sort of my first point on that. I definitely don't separate those out. Um, these, this third section of the book is taken from Scott's book, One Life, which he actually wrote for college students. Um, and I tried to universalize it a little bit more with the study guide uh, to be for disciples of all ages. And he starts with kingdom of God because, I mean, that's one of Scott's biggest emphases in his teaching. He's got a book, The Kingdom Conspiracy, that goes mm-hmm. into that more. But Jesus's main message was the kingdom of God. But when you ask a lot of people, why did Jesus come? They'll say to die and save us from our sins. But actually, Jesus came to tell us about the kingdom of God. And that's repeated over and over in his ministry. So understanding what the kingdom is and how we live that out is a key part of being his student, uh, being Jesus's followers. And then he looks at love. And these sections kind of look at Jesus as our example. How did Jesus love? How do we love? How did Jesus live out justice? So how do we live out justice? Um, And I actually, I caught myself when I was in the revision process, I'd actually written two different Bible studies on Luke 4, (laughs) because it's one of my favorite passages. That's Uh where Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he preaches from Isaiah, or he, he reads from Isaiah, that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon him and has anointed him to, and then he lists all these things, his mission statement, which include liberation, healing, uh, freedom from oppression, and all of this justice work that Jesus has come to do. So I'd actually written... What a cultural Marxist. (laughs) Shameful. It's just terrible. It's terrible. (laughs) He's he's so influenced by critical theory. (laughs) He's too intersectional. (laughs) Um, So I actually had to go back and edit that because I'm so invested in in Luke 4 that I'd put it in two different places. Um, (laughs) So we go through, how did Jesus live out justice? Um, How did Jesus live out wisdom? And I think this is a unique point. Uh, Not a lot of discipleship curriculum looks at wisdom, the necessity of learning from people who are more mature and wiser than us. And that is something I've really learned from Scott um, as as a young, foolish seminary student um, to learn from a professor who sort of reminds me to calm down and learn from wisdom has been very helpful for me. So I, I, I want people to learn to look at wisdom the way that Jesus does. Um, and then vocation, of course, any, we're all given the vocation of the ministry of reconciliation and the vocation of loving God and loving our neighbors, but then any career vocation that we live out, we can follow Jesus in that. And I think that's an important thing for all of us to consider. Uh, and then he goes into eternity which just a little bit touches on some of our misconceptions about heaven and eternity. And I think brings a little bit of corrective to that so that we know what we're living toward, which is the renewal of all things, the new heaven and the new earth and new creation. 
So we want to live now in light of the new creation that we will live out in eternity. Um, so Ooh, so it's, it's on, actually, wait, say, say that one more time really slowly. Okay. Sorry. Am I getting too fast? I get no, no, fast no, no, no. when that, I get excited. No. And we we <laughs> want no, them to actually good. hear it. I, no, no, they're going to hear. I just, I just want to emphasize what what you just said because um, I, I think it's so central to this whole idea of, of gospel and discipleship. Mm. So, if you remember, since we've talked about it, <laughs> say that again slowly. Right. So, I like that this book includes a section on eternity because I grew up thinking of heaven as a faraway spiritual realm that I would go to in a disembodied state and just worship God forever in spirit. Now, I believe that I would be resurrected, but I I think I always pictured that as a spiritual thing. But as I've studied at Northern Seminary with Dr. McKnight, as well as with Dr. Cherith Fee Nordling, who has had a huge influence on my theology. Um, She's the daughter of Gordon Fee, uh, an amazing, amazing woman. Um, And uh, Dr. Jason Guile and some of my other professors, um, they've given me good scholarship from church history that has helped me reimagine eternity, which is that our bodies will be resurrected just as Jesus's body is resurrected and Jesus is in his body still today. And God will bring together the new heavens and the new earth and will restore all of creation where we will reign together with Christ. So we want to care about creation and our bodies now because this is the creation that God will restore in the age to come. So heaven is not far away disembodied. It is embodied and it is going to be here and it is going to be a restoration of all things. It's it's almost like Jesus said something about how we should pray for God's will to be done on earth <laughs> as it is in heaven. That sounds familiar. <laughs> and that sounds like that's what, that's what you're getting at there, right? That we ought to start living now as a reflection of what we believe the kingdom is going to be in the fullness. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Yes. And one thing that we do in Dr. McKnight's classroom is that we open every class by saying the Jesus Creed, which is um, the Shema, as Jesus reimagined it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So we open every class with that. So we keep Jesus's priorities in mind. And we close every class with the Lord's Prayer. And so there's a a constant repetition of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, And so we we want to live out the kingdom of God now as it is as it has been inaugurated, as it has come partially, so that we will be ready to live out the kingdom of God when it comes in full, when Jesus returns. So one of the things that that you're getting at here, and you talk about it in the book, and you've mentioned it in this conversation, is that Christianity is not... I think you used um, Billy Graham revivalism in the sense it's not just this we're going to escape this place, fire insurance, ticket into heaven. It's a, it's a holistic transformation, not just of heart, but of, but of life. Um, and that what we do, you know, you, you've talked about creation care. You've talked about justice. Uh, you've talked about reconciliation, that, that these things are actually 
they're not just nice add-ons, but they are central um, to the gospel. They're central to being being Christian. Is that a fair assessment of what you're trying to communicate here? Yes. I think what I've learned in my discipleship journey is that, and I make this analogy in the book, uh, I think that the gospel and salvation is like the TARDIS from Doctor Who. So uh, the TARDIS is a space and time ship. But the crazy thing about it is that it looks like a, a police box on the outside, but it's gigantic on the inside because of the temporal displacement. So it's bigger on the inside. You walk in and it's bigger on the inside. And that's what I feel like I've stepped into as I've studied theology, Christianity, discipleship, the gospel. It is so much bigger on the inside than I ever thought it was. It's so much more holistic and all-encompassing. And I hope that's what people walk away from this study with, Mm. is seeing that following Jesus will take everything and it will give us everything. Wow. Well, you can't hear it, but I'm trying to pick up my mic to drop it, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's really good. Um, I feel like we should close with that, but we're not going to because I still got some more questions for you. <laughs> okay, that's um, so it, But first, is there is there anything about the book specifically that we haven't talked about that you you want to make sure that 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 our listeners get it? You know, recommendations for how to use it, or or just anything that we we haven't hit so mm-hmm. far. I do hope that people will use it in a small group, and even if that's just one or two other friends. Uh, There is a a strong self-study section, and I think you could get a lot of benefit from it if you just use it for your personal devotions, your personal study time. But I think discussing it with friends and having the accountability to put it into practice will only help your growth. So I do hope people will will do it together with a group of friends or with their small group at church. Um, In fact, if you have a megachurch, I'd like to suggest that you have every person in every single one of your small groups go through the book this next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we if we have any mega church listeners, um, if you if you if you hear that, um, I'm sure Zondervan would be pleased if that <laughs> were to happen. Um, uh, so, I think that growing together with other disciples is really important. We are not meant to do it alone; we're meant to do it as part of the church. Hmm. So, being part of the church as we study and grow is is going to be a key element. Um, And I also hope that this is fun for people. I love using my imagination when I teach and learn the Bible. So I tried to put some fun activities in here. Um, There's, and I also try to appeal to many different learning styles. So there's opportunities to write fiction, to write poetry, to listen to songs, to watch movies and TV clips, um, to do interactive prayer things like to take a walk outside and pray or, um, Uh, to different ways of praying together with your group. I also did try to, um, to make it not too ableist. Like I, I tried to think through, um, I I didn't want to, you know, say things like take a walk outside. Um, but like, if you're able to, um, I I did try to use language throughout that does not ostracize people who, um, are, are not as mobile, um, or who are dealing with, um, health issues that would keep them from... So I tried to make it not uh, contingent on physical ability. Um, But I did try to make it creative and different ways of approaching things. Um, So I hope that people find it to be a fun, whole body, whole spirit way of engaging 
uh, following Jesus. I actually bought two copies. Um, I'm hoping to to work through one with uh, with the guy I'm discipling. So I awesome. Um, and I, I've been I've been looking for something because so much of the discipleship stuff out there, um, it's one of the frustrations I've had with the conversation about discipleship, especially in the American context. A lot of people talk about disciples, right? We need to be disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, but there's very little talk about what a disciple actually is or looks like. Like, And it seems to be that the, you know some of this curriculum and stuff, that there's, there's not much substance in terms of actual life change. There's, not, there's, there's very little, at least that I've found, and maybe I'm just missing it. Um, but uh, uh, discipleship curriculum that that focuses on justice, that focuses mm-hmm. on reconciliation, mm-hmm. that focuses on creation, uh, creation care. It, it's all about, to, you know, okay, you believe in Jesus and then tell somebody else that, you know, it, it, it's just salvation repetition, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. Tr- holistic conservative growth. So well, it's yeah. a soterion gospel. There we go. Well, like, okay, just quote Scott McKnight. Why don't you? Well, I can't Jesus <laughs> juke you, but I'll, I will Scott McKnight you. <laughs> Um, so I'm 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 super thankful. I've, I've I, when you first told me that you were writing this, that it was going to be out. I've been looking forward to it um, because I, I think it really is going to meet a need and fill a gap. Hopefully, you know, like you said, more people start to take advantage of it because so much of the stuff I've seen out there has just been about um, soteriology, just about mm-hmm, salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a making... lot of it is about head knowledge. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, And that's actually, I feel like I've fallen short a little bit. I've had some good conversations with some people on on Twitter about this. And I think I missed, I think this, this, even this curriculum still doesn't quite get at to how our desires are formed and reshaped. And I would love to do some more work in the future about Christoformity, how we're truly transformed and shaped into the image of Jesus, how our very hearts and desires are transformed. I don't think I quite accomplished that with this. And so I would like to do more of that. I'd like to take it one step further and really understand how to help people be transformed. Um, and I had mentioned earlier that I, I could talk about what I think is good for very new believers. Um, and, and you know, I don't want to say this is a bad resource for new believers. I don't know. I just know that with the very new believers in my church, I use something else with them before I would put them into following King Jesus. Um, I actually co-wrote a curriculum with my lead pastor that we're using uh, called Jesus Learners. And I think that any pastor could replicate something like this in their church. It hasn't been published yet. We're still testing it out. But it, I would say the keys for very new believers is to orient them to the Bible before you just throw them into it. So every time I use a Bible passage in this Jesus Learners stuff I'm developing, we gave a little couple sentences of context. Like, here's how this book of the Bible fits into the overall story. And here's the intro you need before you just jump into this passage. This is what happened before, so you know the context. Um, And then it goes through basics of who is God, who is our Trinitarian God, who is Jesus, what did Jesus teach, um, what did Jesus' death accomplish, how do we live out 
life in Christian community now that we're followers of Jesus. And so it, it just starts at those very basic beginnings. And I really think that that any person who's trying to make disciples could do something similar on their own, where they orient people to the basics of Christian theology, the basics of the action of following Jesus, and the, the basics of, of the Bible. Um, so I think if you start with, with a, a, a simple introduction like that, uh, and then jump into something really meaty like following King Jesus, I think that that could work really well. Very cool. Um, anything else about the book that we didn't get that you – obviously, we'll, we'll put the link to the book in our in our show notes, and we'll tweet it out. Um, but is there anything about the book that we, that we haven't hit on that you want to make sure that people hear? Well, we didn't talk much about the fourth section, and I'll just say that that is about life in the church, uh, drawn from Scott's Fellowship of Difference. Um, and his whole goal with that book was to remind us that our churches should not be full of people who are just like us, but that our church should be a fellowship of different people, like the different ingredients in a salad thrown together in a salad bowl where we're all seasoned together by the Spirit, uh, and we make a beautiful whole together. And I think that's a key element of discipleship is doing it in the church and figuring out unity and love with people who are different. And it is so hard. I was just struggling with it the past couple days and reminding myself to love and to be <laughs> gracious and to accept differences is, is the, the greatest challenge and the greatest beauty of the church. So I think discipleship should not be done on our own, but it must be done in the church. You mean that's that's not how Jesus did it? He didn't just give them books and say, go read and fill this out, and then, you know, you're good? Well, he just gave them stuff, the tablets, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> While the introverts among us wish he had, Amen. he sadly did not. <laughs> uh, that, that's a great emphasis. This this stuff needs to be done um, together. So, and I, I I really should put a caveat in there um, for people who have experienced abuse in the church, sure. who do not feel safe in the church. I one hundred percent understand and support that. And I don't mean to say only the institutional church. You absolutely can be a follower of Jesus outside of the institutional church. And sometimes people have very good reasons for doing that. But where possible, to be with other believers who will care for you and support you is a great way to grow uh, if you can find people who are safe. That's really Amen. good. Uh, you, you're so sensitive to those things. I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, okay, so I'm going to shift the, the subject a little bit. Um, our, in our last episode, uh, we talked a little bit about um, our uh, – we've made it clear – uh, we are unequivocally supportive of women in ministry in uh, all levels, that, that women should be able to, to preach and teach and lead churches and, and you know, egalitarian in, in every sense. Um, and with all of the discussion that's been going on lately um, with, with some prominent cons- American conservatives really going after this, this idea of complementarianism and attacking women who teach – do you have anything that you that you want to say about that? You know, obviously, you know, you don't have to if you don't want to. But is there is there anything that, from your perspective, that you would like people to know or hear or just, you know, talk about what it's like to be a woman who's constantly subjected to that kind of need to defend your right to exist? Any of that? Mm-hmm. I would ask people to be 
empathetic when they're talking about this and realize the deep pain that so many Christian women carry because of this. Um, it, I, I love studying theology. I love talking about discipleship. I'm working on a Bible dictionary entry this summer with Dr. Nordling on Jesus's ascension and enthronement. And I, I love all of these different topics, but sometimes when I show up somewhere to speak, I find myself having to first make a case for women in ministry to prove that I have the right to be there before they can even hear what I have to say about these other topics that I've studied. That sounds exhausting. It is exhausting and it's painful. And there are days I've just sat on my couch and sobbed and sobbed because it's so hard. Um, (sighs) And a friend of mine, one of the young students I teach at my church, uh, she's, she's a gifted preacher. I can't wait to see what God does with her in ministry someday. She, she said, well, you sure know a lot about women in ministry and women in the Bible. Is that like a passion topic for you? And I, I said, well, it has to be like, I don't have a choice. I have to know every nuance of this debate and every interpretation of every one of these, these passages that comes into question because I have to talk about this before I get to talk about Jesus. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's my passion topic because it has to be. Right. Um, it, it's not what you would want to talk about. <laughs> if you, you'd like to just talk about Jesus without having to defend yourself. Is that what you're trying to say? Exactly. I mean, I do love the women of the Bible. I just did a teaching yeah. for a seminary classmate for his church leaders in Florida. I got up at 3 a.m. to teach a, a Zoom class for them on women of the Bible because I do. Wow. I love this. I mean, it was 3 a.m. my time, not right. for them. Right. Um, but to, to walk them through women of the Bible, women whose stories they didn't know, like like Huldah and Tabitha, I do love that. But I wish sometimes that I could just walk into a room and say, great, let's talk about atonement theories. And just start there right. without people being like, why are you preaching to us? You're a girl. <laughs> um, um. So, yeah, it, it's exhausting. And so I would say even to my brothers in Christ who and sisters, too, who can't affirm women in a pastoral role could you at least love us could you at least be empathetic and understand how painful this is and understand that we love the bible and we take it so seriously we love jesus we're trying to follow him we're trying to serve the church um and could you understand how painful it is for us when when you debate our right to do what we feel called to do. Um, If there could just be more kindness and understanding in that debate, it would go a long way. I am friends, uh, interact a lot on Twitter, for example, with some complementarian men who would say they believe the role of elder and pastor is reserved for men. But I love my interactions with them because they are so empathetic to women, so sensitive to the abuse women have suffered in the church and so kind in their discussion and who advocate for women to fill every role possible other than pastor and elder who, who advocate for women's voices to be heard in the church. And if all complementarians could do at least that, we yeah. would, we would serve so many more people and there would be so much more peace <laughs> and love in the church. So I, yeah, if I could just call for more understanding on the debate, it would, it would be really meaningful. Good. Well, I think we have a lot of listeners. Um, I hope we have a lot of listeners who like us are supportive of women in ministry what are some of the most helpful things that we can do? I'll tell you my personal belief. Mm. My belief is that because I have privilege and I don't have to defend um, 
my right to speak. That I sort of I, I feel a, a a responsibility to help defend you guys who are doing ministry, so you don't have to do it all the time. One is that helpful, and two, how can those of us who believe that be the most helpful, be the mm-hmm. biggest advocates and cheerleaders for you um, to help share that burden? Are, are there any tips that you would have for us? Well, you're doing great so far. I mean, two <laughs> men having a woman guest on their podcast is a like sharing your platform is one of the best things you can do. And I mean, I feel very much accepted as a peer and an equal in this conversation. Thank you for treating me, you know, like a a sister and a a theologian. Uh, That makes me feel (laughs) welcome. Thank you. That makes me feel welcome. And so if you can do that for women, that is very healing, I think, for women who've experienced rejection in the church. Um, So giving platform, inviting women to speak, even when men give up their own platform for women that speaks volumes. Um, the author, um, Preston Yancey, when he was actively blogging uh, on Thursdays, he gave his blog over to women. And he said, if I don't have a guest post from a woman, I just won't post anything. I'm, I'm literally keeping the space on my platform open for women. That was very wow. powerful. Hmm. Um, so even if you have a guest speaking spot and you can say, you know, there's a woman who actually knows more about that topic than me. What if you invite her? Mm-hmm. That can be very very powerful as well. Um, and just speaking up for us and I won't name names, but you know who I'm talking about those guys we've been arguing with on Twitter. Um, (laughs) when, when you can step in and take the heavy hits first, it saves us from hitting, getting hit with those blows again. Okay. And so really to, to speak up for women is it gives us a respite because then we're not getting pummeled ourselves. When I was, uh, it's funny, when, when I was beginning to date my wife in undergrad, uh, she, for some reason, went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, for those that don't know, Westminster is not a very friendly place towards women in ministry. And I still don't know why she went there, but in God's providence, <laughs> she ended up at Trinity, which is marginally better. And it was one of those things I had no idea. I was raised in conservative evangelicalism and all these sorts of things and never read the Bible in that way. But it's just, as, as we talk about, it's just something that absorbs into you. And what I, when we were talking on the phone, she basically told me, you know, she asked me, what do you think about me being a pastor or women being pastors? And I kind of gave the dumb, Oh, I don't know. I, the Bible doesn't seem to be fine with that, you know, kind of stuff, you know, cause I hadn't studied it. And then she, she, what she said really struck me and it stayed with me this entire time was, well, because I feel called to teach, you need to go and think about this because you're going to get it worse than I am. Because basically her comment was you're shirking your male responsibility by not being whatever you want to call it. Right. And basically that's when it struck me that it's not just about women in the church. It's about how we treat everyone in the church. And that was something that really struck me. And so I'm just grateful that (laughs) despite some of our brothers and sisters out there who say, no, well, the Holy Spirit persists in empowering people beyond that. So I don't know. I just, I was really struck by that. And there's hope too. I'm glad that she told you to go study that. That's amazing. I actually grew up very strongly complementarian, became even more strongly so in my 20s because of the social group I was in. Hmm. Um, and so really my conversion on thinking to the egalitarian or mutualist position only came about six years ago. Um, and it came from studying the Bible and theology. Um, (laughs) but my husband did not make that shift when I did. Hmm. 
So I, you know, I said, actually, I'd like to go to seminary and pursue being a pastor. And also, um, I'm changing the rules of our marriage. <laughs> nice. Wow. Uh, which didn't go over well. But basically, <laughs> basically, we're doing mutual submission now. Um, and so that was a rough time. Um, he eventually did study on his own, and he is now, uh, would you know, a, a mutualist and supports my ministry, supports my seminary, um, and is now we figure out what mutual submission looks like in our marriage instead of you know uh, gender hierarchy submission. Um, so I just want to say there is hope for people. If you are in a situation where um, your spouse is not at the same place where you are, there is a hope for change there. Hmm. That's a very good word. Well, Becky, um, thank you for, for writing this, putting it together. Um, I'm excited to – I've been looking for something, and I, and I think this is going to um, go a long way to help create a culture not just of – Salvation, but a, but a culture of um, discipleship, of actually following Jesus, not just going to church or going to heaven, but 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 being um, disciples, followers, which is um, some of the stuff that we've talked about at length uh, on this podcast. So, so thank you for putting in our hands um, something tangible that we can use with with action steps, and and thanks for listening to the call. Um, you know, seminary is hard enough and ministry is hard enough without having to defend your very existence. And so mm-hmm. thanks for the courage to just follow that call um, despite the, the opposition. And I think you have given the church something um, that will that will benefit and grow it. And that um, I think, at least from, from what I've seen, that, that is filling a void that exists within the discipleship curriculum that's that's currently out there. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's really affirming. I appreciate that. And I would love to hear your feedback as well. If you do end up using this in your discipling relationship, I would love to hear uh, critical feedback on this because I I like writing curriculum. I, I enjoy doing workbooks. So I would love to do more of this in the future. And I'd really like to hear from people how I can make this even better. Very good. Well, um, hey, real quick, tell everybody uh, what your Twitter handle is if they want to follow you on Twitter. I am B Castle Miller, B C A S T L E M I L L E R on Twitter and Instagram both. Very good, and we'll make sure that we share that on our feed and put the the link to the boat uh, to the boat uh, to the book on <laughs> the show work. notes. He says betray on all the time. I, I just combined <laughs> I combined book and note together, and we're going to put it on the boat. You know, I don't have a boat, but I'm actually looking for one because we're doing a sermon on being ship like shipwrecking your faith in a few weeks, and I'm literally looking for a boat right now for a prop. So, <laughs> well, if we have any listeners in the Netherlands who, who have, have a boat. boat for a prop, uh, follow <laughs> Becky on Twitter at bcastlemiller. <laughs> Becky, thanks so much for um, staying up late. I know it's it's late your time to to talk with us, and thanks for putting the the work into this excellent workbook. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This has been another episode of the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. Cheers and amen.